0: Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we seek to be a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family that is captivated by Jesus, compelled to love others, and called to make disciples to the glory of God. As always, we would love to pray for you and with you. Go to our website at waterbrook.church and click prayer. Let's worship together. Morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, maybe you're new- newer here, uh, I'm Andy. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I'm usually back in the sound booth. Um, What's that? Not dancing. Actually, strictly prohibited, except for don't. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that today we can come to you and ask you to speak to us. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would speak to us through your spirit, God. Um, I pray that you would Even speak to us through the rambling of a man who has nothing to offer except that which you have provided, Father. Um, And if not a word, uh, then most certainly a knowledge of your grace. We pray, Father, that you would show us the Savior today. Amen. So in this text today, um, and I think we read through... It says 18 through 21. I think we read through 4 verse 1, but we're going to stop at 21 today. We're going to come across, and I think we did already, come across some, uh, some uncomfortable statements. Statements that if we were to read them divorced from the first half of the book, and even the first few lines of this chapter might cause us to respond with a variety of emotions. Uh, shock, anger, disgust, shame. And they speak to some of the most intimate relationships within our lives. They could be viewed as legalistic or ultra-conservative. They could be viewed as sexist or socially demeaning. But that's why I don't want to trot these verses out without an understanding of what came before, because at the end of the day, these aren't verses that we pull out when we're angry with our kids or when we're disagreeing with our spouse about something. This isn't a scriptural basis for a husband to demand his wife's obedience or for a child getting with the program. This is a restoration of what was lost in the garden when deception and sin started to drive a wedge between the husband and wife, when the familial unit, as God intended, came under attack. Genesis 3.16 says, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The ground was cursed. Labor became difficult. Adam and Eve, instead of desiring to serve each other, now wanted to control each other. They could now see each other's sins, and it became an excuse for them not to listen to God. And every relationship from then on, all the way from our relationship with God, down through our familial, our domestic, our professional, our recreational relationships, even down to our relationship with the earth, became exploitative. We used these relationships to secure whatever it is we thought we deserved. Power, respect, freedom, satisfaction, possessions, affections, value, everything served us. That's why James writes in chapter 2, you ask but you do not receive. Because when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives that you might use what you receive for your own selfish pleasures. And the message of Colossians, um, the message that we've been studying since 2018, um, is that they were serving the wrong God. They were either getting caught up uh, serving what they thought some aeon or some spiritual intermediary could deliver to them if they had the right kind of knowledge, or they were serving a God who would reward them for a lifestyle of self-denial, physical hardship, and ascetic piety. They were trying to serve a God they could please. They were trying to serve a God they could predict. They were trying to serve a God who, since they did so much personally to merit the God's favor, will share his glory with them. And that's the crux of the issue is that if we're not serving the risen Christ, we're ultimately serving ourselves. If we're not serving the God who has already given us everything in Christ, everything in Christ, we're serving a God who we can bend to our will, we can use to our advantage, we can place in our debt. And that's not a God worth serving. As Voltaire said, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. So we place ourselves in, in positions of authority. Wherever we find ourselves, we believe that what we say about ourselves because we are the foremost authority on us. We are the ones who know ourselves most intimately and get to have the final word about us. And it seems like that's why Paul, in the first part of his letter here, he doesn't start issuing corrective statements, right? All of, all of chapter 1 here before he wants them to change his behavior, he wants to make sure they understand who God is. He wants them to understand that there is no power or principle in this world that doesn't derive its authority from or ultimately bend the knee to Christ. He says in the beginning of uh, chapter 3, oh, and then in chapter 3, he continues to hammer home this point that just as whatever, whatever gods they thought they were serving is a chump compared to Christ, whatever rewards they thought they were securing for themselves through meritorious work is filthy rags compared to what God has secured for them in Christ in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 he says since then you have been raised with Christ you have been raised with Christ set your hearts or set your hearts above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things above not on earthly things because you died Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And then he contrasts the old man and the new man. And he says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and don't lie. Instead, That man is dead, he tells them to clothe themselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, putting on love. And just as Paul is demonstrating that Christ remakes the man or the woman, this new life can remake the relationships that these remade men and women find themselves in. And it would be easy looking at these verses today to be a little skittish or tenuous about uh, submitting to their heating if it still involved the old man. But that's the reason verse 18 comes after verse 1. Because verse 1 needs to come before 18 if we're to do it. If I was worried that my reward in this world, that my reward is going to come for this world, and I had no hope secured for me in Christ, I'd probably be trying, I definitely, I would be trying to, I am manipulating the situation to benefit myself here and now. I'd be manipulative. I'd be greedy. I'd be protective. I'd be selfish. If I thought that the only one who knew what was best for me was me, I would not submit to someone else unless I could see something for myself in it. As it is, though, these verses do come after verse 1. This is not a series of commands to be ripped out of their place in the Bible when you and your wife can't agree on a color of paint or where you're going to spend your vacation. It's not something that a parent drops out when the, when the kids aren't mowing the lawn or doing their homework. Uh, it definitely is a verse uh, that your kids will throw out when you're exasperating them, <laughs> but you probably deserve it. I think next to John 3.16, this is the most oft-quoted verse in my household. <laughs> um, I, have to, I, I have to admit, I, don't, I didn't remember that this was in here when I started to preach Colossians five years ago. That was like instant regret. Um, I finally got like, oh, shoot. Um, but the assumption here, the hope here, is that the people reading these words do have a hope secured for them in heaven. Within the context of these relationships described here, we presume that at least one, but maybe both of them, are Christian. Husband and wife, father and child, master and slave. Now, it may be that only one of them is a Christian, but the argument doesn't disappear if a believer is married to an unbeliever, if a parent has unsaved children, if a child comes to faith outside of their parents'. If a Christian la- slave labors under an unsaved master or vice versa, our hope in Christ is the same. Our reward in heaven is the same. Our motivation on earth is the same. It's the first question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Bruce? <laughs> 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 Glorified God and John. He always loves that one. Because that's it. That's, that's why it's the first question. And we can do that, particularly in and through our most intimate relationships. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's the only one. I'm not going to do that anymore. Sorry. Um, but just as these statements may seem to bristle against contemporary messages of uh, self-promotion or self-actualization and self-fulfillment with calls to obedience and submission and service, they would have landed the same way on the Roman households to which they were written. Households where the father was the ultimate authority in the home. Paul's statements here, statements of mutual concern, loving service, and joyful submission, these weren't trying to turn the Roman or the American uh, culture on its head. As we saw, it's been on its head since the garden. It's trying to put it back on its feet and it's doing that by getting everybody on their knees. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So this is a message about relationships, yes. This is a message about authority and submission, yes. But this is a message about thanksgiving to God. This is a message where Christians are called to allow our love for God to break into every facet in our lives, every conversation, every act of service or duty, and let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Paul wants those in positions of authority to say, I have nothing to gain by subjecting you to my will. I have everything I need in Christ. He wants those under authority to say, my reward will not come from you, and it will not come from disobeying you. It will come when Christ appears in glory. And he wants the world to say, ultimately we're under the authority of God he's not only the highest authority he's a good god he's a generous master a loving father an obedient son a selfless bridegroom and a faithful servant he is worth the wait so i want to start out before we start breaking this down by relationship or by authority structure Um, I want to point something out here. This is interesting. There are a lot of lists like this in Scripture, commands like this, Um, instructions to fathers and households and mothers and children. But here in Colossians and also in Ephesians, it delivers many of the same sentiments, but Paul highlights something not found in other lists. Five or six times in these words, he calls out how this kind of obedience is in some fashion in the Lord or glorifying to the Lord right? These instructions aren't simply didactic. They're not prescriptive behavioral changes, which he wants to see in the Colossians. He's qualifying every statement with its appropriateness and their new natures in Christ. A wife's submission is fitting in the Lord. A child's obedience pleases the Lord. A slave's obedience reveres the Lord and serves the Lord. A master's obedience fears the Lord. These aren't things that Paul wants them to do specifically, so that their households would be orderly. Rather, these are acts of worship. These are an act of faith in God, trust in Christ, and reliance on the Spirit. Now, when when I'm putting this together, we usually ask the question, thanks to, um, I think John asked one time, so where's the rub, right? Where does this, where do we bristle against this? Everything in the old man recoils at the thought of being told to submit, especially to another man. But Mutual respect and obedience, particularly within the context of a Christian home, isn't a cowardly or legalistic submission to someone who doesn't deserve our respect or obedience. It's a practical demonstration of our trust and love in the only person who does. Also, while much is said about archaic social structures represented in these verses, wifely submission, slavery, the patriarchy, I don't really intend to touch on those here proceeds to touch on them. Um, When I mentioned the verses, as I was speaking on someone, someone said to me, wow, slavery, how are you going to approach that? Um, And honestly, I I said, I don't really intend to. Paul was opposed to slavery. He told slaves to secure their freedom if they could, but 30% of the world's population at that time was a slave of some form, and it didn't look the way it did in colonial America. Slaves were a member of the household. Note that this letter is written to them they're included in this list of instructions. Their masters were to take care of them and free them after 100, after 20 years of service. Yet often they chose to stay on with, as a permanent member of the household. In the letter to Philemon, though, Paul wrote to a Christian brother named Philemon, possibly from Colossae, about his runaway slave, Onesimus. And he said he was sending Onesimus back to him, but urging him to receive him as more than a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Paul wasn't saying slavery was correct. He was saying that the reality of the time, and that it was the reality of the time and that Christians have a responsibility to live in one kingdom while having citizenship in another. Consider that Paul wrote some of these verses to slaves. These aren't messages that are written Two masters to tell their slaves to be obedient. These slaves, these women, these children, they were members of the church, and in many of these early churches, the slaves might have even had ecclesiastical responsibilities over their household masters. There is no slave nor free. There is no Gentile nor Jew. So these arguments are somewhat of a distraction from the message of the supremacy of Christ, which is what this is about. Calls for obedience and service are placed on both parties in, these, in this relationship says D.A. Carson, Paul gives directions to wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. All are servants of Christ and must live as such, but that doesn't obliterate relationships in our society. Our positions differ, and while a common obligation to live out the faith rests on all of us, the precise form that takes differs according to our circumstances. Paul is showing the church in Colossae That there are all kinds of relationships in this text that, if they're rooted in the social structures and conventions of the time, likely need reconciliation and healing that only the level ground of the cross can provide. It doesn't need a new social structure, it needs Christians to act like they believe that their hope is not in their ability to secure their own worth. Um, In looking at these relationships specifically, uh, I have to confess, this has been one of the most difficult passages I've had to organize because the advice given here is kind of global. Um, within the context of these three relationships, husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, bondservants, the underlying principle of any of these relationships undergirds all of them. If you look in verse 17 um, and verses 23 and through 24, Whatever you do, he says, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. In verse 17, he says that our work should give thanks to God the Father through Jesus. And my son uh, pointed out to me yesterday that all of these relationships in some way echo the relationship that we have with God as his bride, as his children, as his sheep, And our approach to these visible relationships is a manifestation for how deeply we believe in the invisible relationships we have in God as our bridegroom, as our father, and as our shepherd. That's what Paul says in verse 23 when he says, You're working for the Lord, not for human masters. So let's look at these relationships Um, and see how they're supposed to bring glory to God. We're going to take these two at a time, just for the sake of orderliness starting with wives and husbands, but there's something I want to call attention to before we do. I was trying to find a word for, like, these couplets, um, and I probably should have just used couplets, but um, a couple words that came up in my search of a different word than couplet uh, was reciprocal and bilateral. Yeah, and um, (laughs) we'll see in all those relationships, especially those that call for obedience or submission, however, that Although there's an underlying charge for the husband, the father, or the master to be deserving of the obedience of the other party, within these statements, there's no notion of them being reciprocal. They're not quid pro quo. Each statement has a period after it and stands on its own. And this is an uncomfortable thing because it means that our witness may be a humble submission to a non-believer, a tyrant, someone who's emotionally detached, a nag. It means that we are accountable to God for our response to his instruction and we're neither accountable for nor authoritative over theirs. So we have to ask, would our behavior be fitting in the Lord, as Paul mentioned here, if we only extended kindness, love, or obedience to someone who deserved it? What does Psalm 103, verse 10 say? He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Right? In fact, the reality of these instructions from Paul is that because of the gospel, we're actually free to love, obey, submit, and labor for those who don't reciprocate because we can see our own unrepentant hearts reflected back at us. Sir Richard Baker says, Why is it that God hath not dealt with us after our own sins? Is it not because he dealt with another after our sins? Another who took our sins upon him, of whom it is said that God chastened him in fierce wrath. And why did he chasten him? But for our sins. When we were undeserving, God's Son chose to love us, chose not to be harsh with us, chose not to cause us despair, and chose to bless us with the reward in heaven. His mercy to us wasn't reciprocal. It was unilateral, it was unmerited, it was extravagant, and it was loving. So when a wife here is called to submit to her husband, and when a husband is called to love his wife and not be harsh, Paul's instructing the church to see each other as Christ sees them. To be as willing to shower them with love and honor as God was to them, wives, If you had your eyes set on heavenly things and saw your husband as Christ sees him, you would seek to encourage him. You'd submit yourself to godly leadership in his home. You'd you'd accept wise and godly counsel. You'd make his tasks joyful by supporting him, praying with him, praying for him. Husbands, if we had our eyes set on heavenly things and revered our wives, seeing her as Christ sees her, We would be willing to die to ensure her holiness. We would give up everything, as Paul says in Ephesians, to make her holy, to cleanse her by washing her with water through the word and to present her to Christ, radiant, holy, and blameless. Paul here is calling them back to the garden. He's calling them back to loving service to each other, walking in the cool of the day with the Lord, seeking the best and the highest for each other, looking beyond their sin and seeing a resurrected Christ who wants them for himself. We're to be an emissary, an ambassador of that kingdom, seeking the salvation of that person's soul by properly representing the grace as it has been shown to us. And I want to be cautious here because I know we're among the wounded. There are people in this church for whom verses like this or biblical mandates of authority have been abused or misappropriated. I want to say I'm sorry. God sees you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the contrite and spirit. And the expectation here is that people wield their authority as is befitting an ambassador of the God of grace. The family should be characterized by godly leadership in humble service to each other. You have the freedom to surrender and submit for the sanctification for the other person, but that does not remain, you have to stay in situations which subject you to abuse or trauma. There's a self-deception there. There's double-mindedness there. Pray for them, encourage them, but protect yourself. Keep yourself from being manipulated by them. We have several people in this church who, biblical counselors, can help, want to throw that out there, help with that healing process. If that's your reality, if that's your experience, um, reach out to the, the office or Kevin, and they want to serve you. The church wants to serve you, if that's your experience. But I think it was Beg who said, and I think it was Beg. I hope it was, because it's his picture. Um, You know, he says, in marriage, you have two people. And if they aren't both seeking, first and foremost, the better for the other person, well, it isn't going to work. If even one of them has their eyes set on themselves, it's going to fall apart. (laughs) And that's what Paul's calling for here. He's calling for mutual submission and sanctification through a relationship of sacrifice in which they expect nothing except for what they already have in Christ. Um, In the next couplet, this describes the relationship between a child and their fathers. And I'd like to, if you have your Bible open here, I'd like to point out, the text here says fathers. Um, You probably have a little letter next to that word though, and many of the commentators suggest that the writers were actually referring to parents, not just the father. So keep that in mind. I don't think dads are the only one. Capable of exasperating their children. But Paul writes, "'Children, obey your parents, fathers, and everything, "'for this pleases the Lord. "'Fathers, do not embitter your children, "'or they will become discouraged.'" And so for some reason, even though I've been reading the NIV, I have an ESV at home, I've been reading the NIV since the kids were little. It was the Bible I've used for a long time. Somehow my kids picked up on the New American Standard or Christian Standard Bible Translation and have been chastising me for exasperating them uh, since they were six. I don't know where that word came from. That wasn't, it was not, it was not. Um Looking at this verse, though, um, I don't think I don't think we have a lot to say on this one. It's pretty straightforward. I don't think we need to. I don't think we need to belabor it. Um, but there's one thing I do want to say. I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that the text doesn't say fathers do not have had exasperated your children. There's a grace for me in that. Honestly, truthfully, I've spent uh, over a year trying to avoid preaching this text because, to be honest, I struggle personally a lot with guilt, particularly regarding my kids' early years. My sanctification did not take place overnight. Um, Interestingly, John referred me to a book a few days ago called Guilt and Grace, which was recommended by Ray Ortland, and stated in a nutshell, a guilty conscience is the seasoning of life. We frame so much of our identity around a guilty conscience. So much of our lives are characterized by guilt, the book posits, and especially as children, we're steeped in it. As parents, we chastise our children and foist or reinforce these things onto them. We critique them personally instead of their decisions. How could you be so foolish? We encourage feelings of having let people down, expected better of you. We accuse them of being an imposter. Whose child are you? We suggest that they're less than or that they're not enough. When are you going to get your act together? And so they live, they grow up living a life where they come to church on Sunday and hear that they're wholly accepted and loved in Christ, but then they get the silent, disapproving eye roll when they get home and the dishes aren't done or they tell us they got a bad grade in chemistry. We don't have conversations about what interests them. We belittle their hobbies as wastes of time. We don't acknowledge or appreciate that their life experiences are shaping their interests and their personalities in a unique fashion, which God will use in a special way. We let out heavy sighs or (sighs) when they don't look or behave the way we expected them to. The reality of the message to both the Ephesians and Colossians is at some point, you were dead, children and parents. And Christ didn't die for us because we were taking too long to get our act together. Like an impatient father waiting at the door tapping his foot, he died for us because it was the only way. It was never going to happen save for the grace of Christ. And we don't know, we don't understand, we're often afraid to look at um, how bad off we were, especially as parents, when there's an expectation that we're to be the model for the family. Yet, what's, what's great about this is rather than reflecting on the litany of our historic failures and saying, look how ashamed you should be of your failure and your behavior, Paul encourages us to look at it. And he says that how gracious is God that in Christ he rescued us and prepared for us an eternity of joy. I mean, you were really bad. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And John said to me the other day as he was once again counseling me through my sermon, he said, you know, Andy, when we approach these verses, if we're halfway honest with ourselves, we'll become acutely aware of our failure and that we desperately need God's rescue and grace. Isn't it great that these verses come after these verses? that that's the expected response, that God doesn't give us these words here in verse 21 because we're supposed to feel condemned or hopeless, but we have the privilege of reading them in light of everything that came before it. I think the kids were um, six months old when we came to Waterbrook, um, back when we were in an unused wing of the newly built Holy Family Catholic School. It was like 2002 or something like that. And at that point, I wasn't a believer. Actually, I came to faith under our old pastor, Pastor Bonner, who planted Waterbrook. Not for a couple months or so until after coming to Waterbrook. And one day, something in one of Bill's sermons hit me, and I realized that for all of my intellectualism, because I fancied myself an intellectual, and all of my secular naturalism, there were things about the world that I couldn't explain, things about myself I couldn't change, and things about my life that I didn't want to continue going the way they were going. So Bill and Maureen sat with me and they prayed a simple prayer which confessed, in effect, that I'm acutely aware of my failure and I desperately need need God's rescue and help. And honestly, when we come to any passage of Scripture, we should be willing to confess that because we know that confessing that opens us up to the riches of his glorious grace like Kevin preached last week. His grace isn't just helpful, it's necessary. It's not just necessary, it's abundant. It's not just abundant, it's overflowing. Come to the well, he says, over and over, drink deeply. We can approach difficult passages which convict us with the hope of restoration, the promise of grace. That's the only way we can. Can you imagine what it would have been like for this letter to have been read to the church without first telling them that they had been brought to the kingdom of light? without first telling them that they had been made alive in Christ and that their sins had been forgiven, without first telling them that they had been raised with Christ and can now sing to God with gratitude in their hearts instead of fear. I think in my last sermon, I referenced a checklist of holiness, right? We like to have our spiritual scorecards. I like to say, check, 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 got it, here, the quantified self. But this list here, I would have gotten the fail whale sticker on this one. You see, I have more than exasperated my kids, not just provoked them, I exasperated them. I have more than caused discouragement. I have been more than harsh with my wife. I assumed a role of spiritual leadership in my home, which, as we saw, happens when any call for authority is picked up with the steel gauntlet of power instead of the velvet glove of grace, it wounded where it should have nurtured. And when my kids were young, it didn't matter if I was right or wrong, I was dad. And they say, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Is anybody here willing to say that they're impervious to the effects of words? Ephesians expands on this, instructing parents to bring their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. But when we wound them with their words, we lose the opportunity to speak hopefully, helpfully and honestly into their lives. A.T. Robertson cautions that in most cases with us, the peril is that the child will throw off parental control and obedience to God at the same time. There again. We've usurped God's authority. We've placed ourselves in his position of authority as if what we have to say about them is the final word. We didn't teach them about God in that instance. We taught them about us. Now, this letter was written to children who were present at the assembly. They have a responsibility within the family dynamic. Paul says at the end of verse 25, though, there is no favoritism. Verse 11 of chapter 3 eliminates any distinctions which would have caused one to operate from a position of superiority. Rather, in God's sight, children and parents have equal worth. Parents are to treat their children with respect as persons. And there's a call for certain for children to obey their parents. Their parents were given to them by God for their care and instruction. And this obedience which Paul calls for here, this obedience which pleases the Lord, is an obedience that pursues people for the sake of their souls. Like marriages, look again at what you have in Christ, possibly determine to endure some hardship to maintain a humble and gentle witness, but not at the expense of your physical, or your emotional health, and certainly not at the expense of your relationship with God. Now, I praise God that my wife and my children know enough about Christ that they're gracious to me and they trust that God will finish the work in me that he began. And I bless God The last night my son, as I was struggling over these words, said to me he said, you know dad you have the freedom to get up there tomorrow and not preach from a position of guilt or shame. You know that, right? This isn't like the book says, a call to sprinkle more guilt onto anybody's platter. The intent here is not to make anybody squirm and regret or shame. The intent is to remind everyone that we have died to the old self and have been raised with Christ. This is a call to put on the new self, One made of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. A call to approach our most intimate relationships in a new way where our personal glorification is the last thing on our mind and our enabling is not our capacity to bear with one another but God's capacity to rejoice over us in Christ. And this may seem repetitive, but that's honestly the only arrow I have in my quiver today. The only hope I have The only guidance I can give, the only reason I have for navigating these relationships one way and not the other is because there was a son who was obedient to his father. And though it be the father's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, though the Lord made his life an offering for sin, after he suffered, he saw the light of life and was satisfied. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I am not my own man. I have been bought with the blood of Christ and his call for my life is to approach all my relationships with gospel, gratitude, and gratuitous grace. Right. Praise, God. Praise God. So I'm actually stopping here um, today. <laughs> I, really, I really wanted to get through 4-1, but I only have half a page left and so we'll get to the rest in 2025. Um, uh, but, you know, I appreciate sticking with it. Passages like this, as straightforward as they are, can be really difficult to navigate because they give us a very clear picture of something that is incredibly foreign to this world. Like I said before, this might be very different than our lived experience. Even even people raised in a Christian home often hear these statements and assume that it means another relationship based on an authoritarian imposition of subjugation and heavy-handed rule instead of the grace-filled, forgiveness-based, mutually sacrificial, Christ-exalting, united body of peace that God intended. He's not giving them a list of to-dos and to-don'ts so people can tolerate each other. He's showing them that God is building a new community, It's being built on a foundation of grace and as Tozer says, the bigger the structure, the larger the foundation to support it. God's grace can handle this, Paul is saying. We're building on this foundation of grace, nothing less than the kingdom of God. You think God's grace can't handle a troubled marriage or a strained relationship with your children or parents? So many people in the time of spontaneous prayer today, they reflected on the world you're right, families are deteriorating. Children are anxious and depressed. Parental relationships are strained. People are dissatisfied, and nobody's happy with it. That's why this is so counterintuitive to our current cultural moment because this is how it's supposed to be. Our world as it exists now is not. God's vision for the world but God's vision is pressing in and breaking through and it's going to be uncomfortable but it's going to be good because he is good and it's going to be worth it because he is worth it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for grace. Thank you for grace shown to me, shown through me, Lord. I can't say that I know much about being a good husband or a good father and certainly probably not a good son for that matter. Um, But I can certainly tell people how to fall in Christ's mercy. That's the only way we're going to make it. Wake us up, Lord, to what we have in Christ, I pray. Help us, Lord, see that it is more than sufficient and help us to stop trying to secure for ourselves what is due only to Christ. And it's in his name we give thanks and we pray. Bless you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.